You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Hello and welcome to the delirious nomads podcast i'm your host matt bacon chris is not here but i promise you he will be back very soon he's literally like filming stuff with rachel ray and stuff chris is wild anyway i do have a very cool guest today a very good friend of mine someone who's been my friend for a really long time now yeah it's kind of weird that how are you tom haywood of redefining darkness what's up what's up man what's up everybody yeah i hope i can live up to Chris Santos, uh, <laughs> you know, filling in this little spot for the day, but uh, we'll try to make it interesting, you know? Yeah, so let's talk about this for a minute, because you obviously have an interesting background in the scene, right? Can you talk about that? Because obviously you have the label, but what came before the label? And then lead us into how that turned into the label. Well, it depends how far you want to go back, you know, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I've always been obsessed with music, you know, still as a kid, and then Kind of probably the same story as most, you know, you, you hear that one band and it triggers all kind of stuff and you start going down the rabbit hole and you're looking for more and more extreme. And, you know, so by the time you're a teenager, you know, start playing or start taking instruments more seriously, music more seriously than you used to and um, kind of takes over your life. You know, when I graduated high school, I did like two years of community college music focus. So taking a bunch of music courses and business and composition and stuff like that. And then I took two year break and I was still playing in bands like locally in the Cleveland area around that time. But then after that two year break, I realized that I needed something drastic to change. I needed to to really pursue this thing if I really wanted to do it for the rest of my life. So I uh, applied to go to Musicians Institute in Los Angeles. And so then I moved to L.A., with a friend of mine who went to PIT, which is the Percussion Institute, and graduated from there, you know, a year or two later. And so that kind of really catapulted the journey and like, no turning back, like, this is what I'm going to do one way or another. I'm going to make this my life in some way. So yeah, that's when I just like, I literally left everything, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time I've been with for like seven years or something it was crazy. And I just was like, I got to go do this for my life you know i have to do this i'm like 22 years yeah. old if i don't do it now like, so yeah so i went to school so la was great met people from all over the world because it's weird like berkeley and boston is like a more popular school here in the united states for music and uh, obviously the collectives becoming a more popular school was pretty small back in like 2003 when i when i was going uh to mi but um mi is really popular in other countries like uh, japan and sweden actually because there's another mi in japan oh, i didn't know that yeah yeah we had a really mixed diverse 
group of, of students there because of that. So it was like a third American, a third Japanese, a third Swedish, and then everything else mixed in, you know, Australia, people from all over. So it was just really cool to interact with those people. So most of my friends weren't from LA. They were actually from all over. Uh, so that was really cool. But then, yeah, just playing all the time. And, and that's why I chose Musicians Institute was because like with Berkeley, it was like, you know, class, more classroom setting. And like, if you wanted to play, you'd have to like lug all your gear around all the time or you had to, you know, your I was a drummer. So, you know, of course, it's like the worst thing to lug around. And you had these big lockers and when you'd want to play, you have to break them out and go to, you know, room, whatever. I don't know if things have changed, but uh, in L.A., they had, you had your own like practice cubicle that you shared with somebody and every room after hours turned into a practice room. So every classroom had basically everything you needed in it and you had 24 hour access. So well, dude, really I would play like two in the morning. Yeah, it's crazy. So I just dove in hard there. But yeah, so then after that, I did end up moving back home because I kind of made myself an ultimatum. Like if I can't get a job in music in L.A. before my time is up, I, I didn't want to get stuck having to like pay rent working in and out or something. You know, like I needed to get a gig. Sure. Like I kind of put myself in a timeline anyway. So I moved back home, kind of save money and regroup, moved to Cincinnati for a little a little while. Uh, met my first wife there. Well, actually, I met her in Cleveland, moved to Cincinnati with her just to kind of get a new perspective. And then um, I started auditioning. So it's funny, I auditioned for Diecast. If you remember Diecast in uh, remember Diecast. Massachusetts area. So I was like probably like 2004, 2005, maybe. And I think I was a runner up for that gig. I had come out pretty early. They really liked me. And I know a couple of the guys were fighting for me to be in the band, but then some dude came down from Canada that they really, I, I think, uh, blew him away. And so he ended up getting the gig, which worked out. And then um, Into Eternity, I actually auditioned for and got the gig, um, which was a Century Media band at the time. Dude, I had my whole life ready to move. Like, I had to take out a loan. My mom helped me take out a loan to, like, move to Saskatchewan, like, Canada, pretty much. Like, the week I was moving, Tim had hit me up, like, I, I actually, the week before I was moving, Tim hit me up. I'm like, hey, I, like, what day are you coming in? You're coming in this week? I'm like, no, it was next week. I, I'd given you all the information. Like, I needed to clear some stuff here uh, before I came up, but I'll be there next week. And they're like, oh, well, Century wants, like, stuff like this week i thought you were coming this week and i was like dude i turned like I gave, I gave you all my details so pretty much he was saying well they want they want us to get in the studio and like i'm just gonna have the our old drummer come in and play these tracks and i was like dude i'm moving my whole life like this and you're telling me now that i'm just gonna come up there and be some live guy like and i gotta live in your basement and you know it's so weird so i cut i i, I didn't go because it got so weird it like flipped in a, in, a, in a second, which I'm sure happens uh, in a lot of cases like this. But yeah. When you're messing with people's lives like that, man, that that's uh, terrifying and it's hard. Yeah. Well, he wasn't thinking about that. You know, he was thinking about what he needed to do, which I which I understand. But I was like, dude, you got to understand where I'm coming from. I'm like literally uprooting my whole life to come be in a death metal band. Yeah, right. So so I didn't do that, which ended up working out good because obviously all the problems they've had. Although I was a fan of of them at the time, and then uh, yeah. Just kept moving along, man. And and then around uh, 2006, 2007, I moved back to, up to Cleveland with with the wife. We got married in like 2006. And um, I had a friend get a gig with Abigail Williams. The, actually, the friend I moved to L.A. Didn't we all? Yeah, yeah. There's, that member list is like insane, man. It's like an encyclopedia of metal in its own right. But the friend that I moved out to L.A. with to go to school at MI, he was the one that got the the drumming gig for Abigail. So he had flown out uh, to Arizona where they were based. 
started doing the tour with them, which was Dark Funeral and Slave and Abigail, which is an amazing tour. And um, this was 06, still the end of 06. This was like fall, like right, right around this time, probably. So he went out and I wasn't familiar with Abigail Williams at the time. They just had that EP out. And to me, it was too newbie anyway. I, I wasn't interested, but I was interested in Dark Funeral and the Slave. But I was happy for him, you know, and, and whatever. And uh, as he got out there, he got out there a week or two early. They started rehearsing, doing all that. And right as they were leaving for tour, the guitar player quit. So my best friend got the call back in Cleveland because of my other friend who was playing drums now. Uh, he's like the best guitarist, musician I've ever met. My friend felt the same way. We call her dude Mike. So John, John was a drummer. Called my dude Mike, and uh, Mike flew out. So I think that gets the old guitar player did like a couple dates, but then they had to fly Mike out to like Oklahoma. So Mike had like three days to learn the set. Flew to Oklahoma, came, you know, pretty much finished the tour. Cleveland was one of the last four or five dates. So I go to to see my friends play, and uh, Mike comes up to me and he's like, "Dude, they're like not happy with John, man. He's like not cutting it. They're gonna like leave him in Cleveland, and they're gonna have Zach Gibson, who I'm sure you're aware of from." Black Dolly Murder, he played on Miasma, he played in Phobia, all those bands, played in Abigail Williams. He's from Detroit, so it was just a, you know, uh, Zach was coming to the show in Cleveland. It was only a two-hour drive or whatever, and uh, their plan was to leave John in Cleveland because it wasn't working out. He wasn't, like, cutting it, and Zach was going to finish the tour because there wasn't that many dates left. And so I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be, like, a messy night, you know? So I just stepped back, supported. John played that show, but then they left him there, and... um Abigail Williams broke up after that. So for people that don't know, Ken and Ashley were pretty much Abigail Williams. She was the original keyboard player. Who, she's quite amazing, by the way. She went to school. And that band fizzled out. So I got a call from Mike, that guitar player who had gotten called in, right? He was my, he's my best friend. And uh, he's like, I've been talking to Ken, Sorceron, however you want to address Sorceron, who's, who's pretty much Abigail, right? Him and Mike still were, were in contact. So Ken had gone back to Phoenix. Mike was in Cleveland. And they had been writing back and forth, you know, internet, over the internet, whatever. But Abigail was dead at this point. So um, they were doing a new project, unnamed. And Mike recommended me to play drums. So then I sent some video rehearsals. And we back then, we had to do the camcorder thing because uh, phones didn't have video yet. Or at least sure. most didn't. It's all still flip phones. So and Bluetooth, maybe. But uh, yeah, so then I got the gig that way. And then, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of it. So that's a whole other story, man. But basically, that project got signed to Roadrunner. Mike Gitter was our A&R guy. Uh, it was called Born of Fire. You could find at least one track on uh, YouTube, I'm sure, if you search Born of Fire. The song was Burning Bridges. That's the song that really got us signed. But that, it took us a while, man. They, they were recording us for a while. Gitter kept calling in on us, that kind of thing. And it was taking a really long time and Gitter had recommended because Abigail Williams kept getting uh, tour offers, even though they were defunct. Him and Ked would talk and, and Gitter was like, well, why don't you take this lineup and go out as Abigail Williams and just like see if this is working? He's like, you know, before we get in this whole Roadrunner mess, like see if you even get along with these people, see if there's chemistry there. And sure. so Ken was like, well, look, I don't know if this thing's going to work out. So we got all these offers. Do you guys want to do this? So then, yeah, it just kind of started happening that way. So we did go out with Abigail Williams, but in the meantime, we did get signed as Born of Fire with Roadrunner. And then it just so happened that uh, um, when Roadrunner was going to do their forecast, I think this was for the year 2008, we weren't, we didn't fit, basically. We were a brand new band. They had just signed us. They were signing Mutiny with, Within at that point, too, I think. It was us and Mutiny Within. 
and um originally called mutiny yeah they didn't they they didn't have room for us because you know they got slipknot records to worry about nickelback records to to put all that money to so they're like well we can either put out a record in 2009 which is a whole another year away and we wouldn't be able to do anything we just have to sit and wait or uh we'll release you and give you like 25 grand so we were like we still got abigail williams to go out with so let's just you know we owe a lot of money to our management let's like just say goodbye. So we did. That's wild. That's like very of that time. too. Long story, but summed up quickly. <laughs> yeah. And so then you lead Abigail Williams eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So I stayed with them. It was so 2007 was the first tour we did, which is pretty wild because it was with um, Vader and Love and Creation and Cattle Decapitation. It was Vale Amaya's first tour. We were playing over uh, them cool. in like this city. Yeah, it was, it was a Death by Decibels tour. I don't know if that was the first one or not. They didn't do too many of those, I don't think, but that might have been the first one ever. I'm not sure. So that was cool for my first official, like, real tour because I was a huge yeah. Vader fan growing up and Love and Creation. So I was, like, in heaven. And I was actually playing bass for Abigail because uh, even though I went to school for percussion, I was never that. I mean, these dudes are playing, like, 16th notes at, like, 240 on, you know, double bass. I'm, yeah. I was, like, nowhere near that. Born of Fire was a lot more mid-paced, so I was playing drums for Born of Fire. But during that whole time I was explaining, we had a um, a showcase that we were supposed to do for Roadrunner, kind of in the midst of all that early like courting that I was uh, describing. And uh, that week, we we were real crazy then, man. I was working, me and Ken were both working at a club in Cleveland doing sound. And we just th- partied this one night, and everyone, we all hung out because we were going to the studio after. So basically, we would either work or we would be at the studio writing songs to send to Roadrunner to see if like we can push it over the edge. Right. And uh, we parted hard, man. We got drunk and I, I kicked what I thought was a beer bottle on the ground. And it was like a street sign post that they had cut because they were doing construction on the street. And I destroyed my foot, dude. Like I thought I broke my foot and we were supposed to play like later that week. This was like probably a Sunday. We were supposed to play like Thursday or Friday. So I couldn't even like walk. So we had to figure out something quick and we didn't have a bass player. So I was like, look, dude, I'm not going to ruin this. You know, we've worked so hard. I like don't want to be out of this. I'll do whatever I have to do to stay in this. I'll buy a bass rig. I'll play bass because I've always played guitar and bass too. And like, let's just get Zach down and like do this for the showcase and all that. So that's kind of what we did. So that's how I ended up playing bass for Abigail. That's cool. And then how did that turn into the label? Yeah. So I toured with Abigail 2007, 2009. We were with... um TKO Bookings. For those who don't know, that's Ash Adelson, his booking company. So the owner of Samarian, and he's doing a lot of big things now. Ash was actually our agent back then. Our manager was Jerry Club, which if anyone's followed Jerry at all, it was literally the first two bands he had under his management wing were us and Suicide Silence. And Suicide Silence blew up and uh, Jerry got win- win- Winds of Plague and Winds of Plague blew up. And he got like Memphis Mayfire and all these other bands and they all blew up. And Abigail Williams was like the dark horse, you know, like we were like the shitty like step, step son or something. You know? We just shit the bed every time. But yeah, so we had this with good crew, really this, this good support and um, got to the point as we kept going that Ash wasn't, you know, other bands were coming along doing better. Ash wasn't really getting us good tours anymore. And so um, as we were kind of like figuring out what to do, we brought in John Finberg because he guaranteed. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know, man. He 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 was dead. He, he didn't have a good relationship with a lot of people, but he was really um, anti-TKO. And he was like, I'm going to book a tour that, you know, blow them out of the water, you know, whatever. So 
he he booked this um it was goat whore abigail williams co-headlining so they were like switching nights doth who was on roadrunner and do you remember swats successful right apocalypse across the sky yep and i want to say there was more band on there so it was actually a decent tour lineup but because Finberg had this shit in his head, dude, this tour started at like 40, 42 dates, which is, you know, a substantial tour. It turned into 72. 72, dude, by the end. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So that was kind of going to be my last tour. It was just, you know, I, I'd been married for a while. We had one kid already. We had another kid come in and, um, you know, had a house already. And, uh, yeah, you know how it is, dude. I, I come off tour and I barely have money. So I would work. You know, luckily I had these odd jobs I can go back to and I make as much money as I could. And when I'd leave for tour, I would basically give the wife all the money she would need while I'd be gone as far as for rent and my portion and all that. And sure. I would leave. But I'd already had a kid at that point. So I was missing the kid's life. It wasn't really going in the, as quickly as we I wanted to in the direction I was hoping uh, money wise. And so, um, you know, I just had to make a, a life decision. So I was like, OK, well, I'll do this one last tour. It'll be cool you know basically our first butt bus tour co-headlining go for this is gonna be fun fun last tour and uh as those dates kept going up and up and up i'm like dude i can't be gone for that long and not come back with like 1500 bucks you know like i'll yeah. be like dang by the time i get back you know i won't have a house so uh so i exited i was like i have to go man like it's, it's just not gonna work out for me so it was bittersweet because um you know it wasn't anything bad like we had a good relationship I think the band was, you know, still doing well. We were, we were kind of trying to figure out our next steps. Like I said, the TKO thing wasn't working out and just trying to figure out where to go next. Um, but yeah, it, it's just life. So that was the end of that, man. And so then how does, how do, how do you start redefining darkness? So yeah, so uh, got home, tried to get the life together. Still wanted to make my music my life. So I, I was doing sound at the club and um, which was great because bands that would come in, you know, that I toured with or been friends with, it was like, reunions all the time you know it was just like running yeah. into all your friends and so that was actually really fun but i still had a family man so i was working like super late obviously doing these shows running running sound mostly monitors and i was teaching music i taught music for like eight years at a conservatory uh teaching percussion oh, that's cool. started like a rock school for kids and shit yeah so i was doing a bunch of odd jobs as a musician as most musicians probably do uh just to get by and whatnot but yeah the me and the wife didn't work out so you know, I'd go through divorce there and, you know, that's never easy, even though it was kind of mutual. And um, I had to kind of get my life together. So I actually took a break from me, all music from like 2010 to like 2014, maybe, dude. Like, oh, wow. So like right when I met you, maybe maybe it was 2012, 2014. It was about a two, two and a half year period where I had to like just leave because for me, music is I, I liken it to like an um, abusive relationship. And it's my own fault. But it's like I, I'm so obsessed and so driven that like I let it take over everything in my life. And when when the divorce happened and I had to kind of look at my life and go, OK, what what do I what am I doing with my life? I got kids. I got two babies. And my ex now worked a day job. And because I worked all nights and crazy hours and stuff, I was like the stay home parent Monday through Friday in the daytime. So I actually got to be with my daughters like all the time. So it was like, well. And I got offers, dude. I don't know if you know Eighth Day, Eighth Day Sound. Yeah, they have office in they have office in Cleveland and New York and London and you know all over the world. And they do sound for like Madonna, Jay Z, and all that, right? I had a friend who got a job there. He's like, dude, you want to work for Eighth Day? Like, I can get you in. And I was like, man, that, that would be amazing. But then I, I had to think, like, I would never see my kids. I'd be home like two, maybe three months out of the year. 
and I would I wouldn't know my kids at all. So as tempting as that was to continue to make music my life, I, I kind of proud of myself that I stepped away from that offer, and um, you know I just took a took a road that I didn't necessarily want to take, but I felt like was important um, when you take the selfishness out of it, you know. But anyway, music had, had been abusive. I I let it become abusive, almost like a drug addiction or something, where I really needed an extreme. Sure, and that's like a really hard thing that people don't really know how to deal with. Yeah, dude, I was like seriously driven and obsessed with it because I it just a consumes everything you know and i let it and i let it do that so then the label starts out of that yeah so once once i got stability so obviously it takes time to like figure yourself out right so i did some therapy just to figure out like okay well what happened in this marriage and why didn't it work and you know what, what was my part in it and what you know how can i make myself better so i went to therapy for a little while to to the point where i felt good where I felt like I, I could step away. So, you know, you deep dive into yourself and you see things that you didn't see before and all that kind of stuff. So it was really great. But then you kind of know when you're done, you know, and um, or at least I did. And so I did that for maybe a year. And then, um, you know, I just got time to be comfortable with myself. You know, I had the house. She didn't want the house. So I got the house and had my kids all the time and just figuring out like, what's next? What do I do with my life and get comfortable with myself? And um, I was still listening to music, but I was, I was like allowing myself to, you're like a different generation, man. Like I, I like yeah. envy your generation because you guys are a lot more open. But my generation, I was at the tail end of like those tape trader dudes. And like, those are the guys I looked up to growing up. Sure. And they're like, they tend to be super elitist, you know, whereas like, if you don't like this, or if you like that album from that band, you're a poser, you know, where it's like, it's kind of fucked up, you know? So I kind of, you kind of have that back in the back of your head, even though it's bullshit. Like you think about that and it affects your decision sometimes, which is kind of stupid. Yeah. But when you grow up that way, it's kind of it kind of lingers. So I loved all kinds of music. I obviously went to school for music and I never had a problem admitting to stuff. But at the same time, um, yeah, that kind of feeling lingers, which is, is kind of like a weird thing to explain for people that don't understand that. But I really started diving into other music. So I took all the passion that I had for metal because I was always looking for the newest thing and finding the most extreme stuff. That whole time I was playing in bands and growing i mean literally from probably 12 10 12 years old all the way through abigail Williams. and um i stopped the metal thing and walked away and started like digging into indie and r&b and like all this other stuff of like exploring with the same fervor and passion that i would with metal but like in more positive things and like it really just like calmed me out man and like like i discovered a lot of cool stuff and uh it was just a nice break from all the doom and gloom and um I think it, it just helped uh, get me in a different headspace, man. And then once I got comfortable with myself, I met my current wife. Mm -hmm. um, and so those that was going good. And then once we were kind of together a while and things kind of like righted and, you know, I was becoming a better person and a better man and a better father and a better companion and all these things. Once all those things started to happen and line up, then I started feeling comfortable again to step back into that space because I never sure. left like the friends, right? The only friends that I left behind as I was like self-examining was like all the friends that were like uh, energy vampires and like yeah. dramatic suckers of the soul. I, I realized that during therapy, I'm like, I got to get rid away from these people, you know, people that are very like self-serving friendship where they're like always like dumping their problems on you, but you're never talking to them about your problems. It's not like a, sure. a true friendship. It's just like them, like, you know, after you get off the phone, you're just like, oh my God, like you yeah, like, what am I fucking doing do talking to this guy? Yeah, and you feel bad because you've known him forever, you're your friends, but I had, to, I had to cut off ties to some of them, and that really helped too. So like I said, I had to kind of extreme cut off 
kind of the metal stuff for a while. It wasn't like I didn't listen to any, but I wasn't like exploring and diving in as I had been before. Uh, going back to maybe some old stuff here and there, but um, but yeah, man. So once all everything started going right and I was getting on a really good track, um, I started feeling comfortable enough to, to kind of like let the guard down and like, because the love was always there. The passion for sure. extreme music, especially, is always there. And uh, I started kind of like, doing this again and you know and i had friends that were doing new projects and i I would keep it in touch with everybody and so my foot was always like in the crack of the door you know sure and the one thing i hadn't done because i had toured obviously as a musician i tour managed while i was on tour i'd done sound at a club you know i've kind of done all these different roles and i'd never been on the business end or the promotion end or the label end i didn't really understand much about it other than what i experienced on the musician side so so i was like well you know what i have all these friends i'm like everyone comes to me for new music. Like I'm the one that's showing everybody like, check out this band, check out this band. So I already do all that work anyway, but it started with writing actually. It's uh, you know, through just like social media and talking to people and networking. I met a guy who ran a site called all All about the rock in the UK and he needed. Okay. I remember that site. Yeah. They they did a pretty good job and um, they needed writers. And I was like, you know what, let me, I'm not a good writer necessarily, but I listened to a shit ton of music. So I give you my opinion and I've been listening to this music my whole life. So they were cool with it. And obviously it was interested in my background and stuff. And so I started writing for them and doing reviews. And that's when everything started to kind of come together. And I'd done a couple podcast interviews then for them that I ended up turning into my own podcast, which is that into the darkness podcast. The first couple right. were like James Murphy, who's a long friend of mine now and uh, Gregor McIntyre. Oh, right. oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's all available and up, but uh, that was a really good one. Gregor McIntosh from Paradise Lost, who one of my favorite bands of all time. That was set up by them, so that was cool. And um, Trevor, actually, I think, was like my first official of course he was. podcast. I'm going, okay, I'm going to make this my own rather than doing it for them. Like, I really enjoy doing this. So I reached out to Trevor, and, and he did that for me. So he was like the third one, or, or officially like the first into the darkness podcast that's wild yeah and then that turned into the label thing you know with all with everything that was going on just like i told you it was kind of like i do this anyway out of the love for for searching it out i have all these friends in the industry they're all in different bands now they have a side project why don't i just try to release it you know so that, that's that and so then what i wanted to kind of get into here was like you know the death metal scene is kind of in the best place it's been in a very long time right now yeah uh, and you kind of witnessed that development firsthand. Why do you think it is in such a good place? Yeah, it's hard to say like exactly, you know, the reason. Um, but, you know, these things do happen in cycles. I do believe that. And, and it's not the type of secular relationship that I think people want to believe. Like, oh, the 60s style dress rotates now. And like, this. I don't think it's that like crystal clear. I think it just comes in these bizarre overlapping cycles and um you know obviously the last one was in like late 80s early 90s and uh i guess it's just the time but i think it takes new blood to have these things happen and so you had a bunch of hardcore kids get into death metal basically is what happened and instead of you know there's a lot of dudes the old me would have definitely been like fuck off like this is our style like you can't have it you know um that's that elitist mentality yeah that i was talking about but uh, it was cool. It was cool and refreshing to hear that different spin. And one of the first bands that I heard, and again, this was me like doing what I did, searching out new music. Bandcamp was kind of this new thing around 
was was like what 2014 2013 2012 maybe something like that when i started getting back into everything so band camp was this kind of new fresh thing and i would just go down these rabbit holes and yeah i found that band found this band from toledo mutilatred yeah because uh, it started so yeah they started in like 2013 2014 so it would have been right then they had this like two song demo or something and i was like holy shit this is like mortician but like real instruments and a little slower and just completely crushing i'm like i've never heard anything like this so it was kind of a cool take on uh, you know these kids kind of discovering death metal and doing their version of it basically you know uh and truly getting into it these weren't just dudes hopping on some bandwagon because there was no bandwagon at that time these were just dudes that were like wow i've never heard anything like this before i was listening to all these victory bands or whatever and now like I heard, I don't know, Defeated Sanity for the first time and it blew my mind and, you know, started doing this stuff. So I heard Mutilation and was blown away. And then obviously Gate Creeper came around the same time. Um, so it's just cool to hear these fresh takes and going kind of back to the back to this primitive way of uh, ironically how thrash turned into death metal. Now we were having like hardcore's turn to get into death metal, which is kind of like a weird dichotomy, you know, but it worked. Um I mean, it got oversaturated, just like it got oversaturated in the 90s, but we're still kind of riding this thing. And I think because people are staying open and they're letting it evolve on its own, um, you know, I think some of it's totally overdone, right? I mean, there's just so, so many bands. Like, I, you can't possibly know them all anymore because of where we are with technology and everyone to be able to record themselves and, like, all these things. Like, it, it is sure. an in, intense and overwhelming environment. But for anyone who's interested in it and new, it's like... It's exciting. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's like euphoric. It's almost like having every drug available to you and you can just grab it and go. You know, it's like all this amazing music and you can filter through the stuff you don't like, but there's always going to be something you can find that you like. So that part's still exciting. And, and I like that that kind of like exploratory like adventure and kind of like finding this stuff is, is fun to me. Yeah. It's like this baseball card collector mentality, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally, man. And I think a lot of metal fans feel that way. So, yeah. And so that's cool. And then like, what do you feel the successes of the label or what do you think set the label apart? I don't know. It's hard to kind of self-examine, you know, but sure. I think the fact that I had some connections at the beginning definitely helped me. Um, sure. I tried to use it to my advantage a little bit. I wasn't trying to like name drop and stuff, but it was like, Hey, just an introductory introduction, basically of like, Hey, I, I just started these new labels. I used to do this, you know, I'd appreciate any help or assistance or your whatever. Yeah. Can I send you promos or, you know, whatever, like the stuff that you preach of like, just network, just introduce yourself. Like don't ask for favors, but like, just say, hi. just say hi, let them know what you're doing you know, build some rapport. So I started doing that. And I did some research too, obviously. And, you know, I don't know if people know, but I have two different labels and that was very strategic. And, you know, I looked at kind of what was going on at, at the time and Dark Descent was really on the rise at that time. They were just blowing up, kind of like we saw with Maggot Stomp in the last like two years. Like that was happening for Dark Descent at the time, like lightning fast growth. And I was like, man, everything they're releasing is like exactly the same. And uh, then I started noticing all those stoner doom labels, like the Ripples and Easy Rider or, uh, you know, all those. And they were so specific and niche. And remember, I had left the scene for a little while. So when I came back in, I'm like, oh, this is like different. This is like a boutique scene. Like, yeah, this is like specified for your taste. You know, it was almost like, yeah, like a drug boutique, <laughs> like in the Netherlands or something like, hey, are you like this? Come here and we have this for you. And it's all this. Um 
so I thought that was interesting. So I started doing more and more research and I was like, well, you know what? I'll try that. Fuck it. Like if that's going to catapult what I'm doing, uh, let's experiment. So I, I love obviously extreme music and love death and black metal. I was like, okay, well I'll do one imprint just solely into that. Like if it's evil, that'll be here. But I love so much music that, you know, I wanted another outlet to be able to support bands that I truly loved. And so that's why seeing red exists, you know? Right. And if you look at, if you look at the trajectory, my, my theory kind of proved right. The more niche, the faster it grows is because you have this built in audience of like, if this audience liked that last release and this release pretty much in the same exact vein, they're probably going to like this one. Yeah. And then you kind of get like consistent followers or whatever. Yeah. You get this built in fan base almost. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, it kind of sucks for seeing red, which is more of like a um, traditional label, right? You got bands that are kind of all over the board and a lot of great bands, but they don't tie into each other. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that same effect. So but yeah, so that's what that's kind of how I, I think that's what catapulted me is just kind of using that, you know, what I kind of seen happening in the scene mm-hmm. and, and using that to catapult it. But then just like maybe the quality of bands, you know, and, and again, dude, like you don't know when you hear a band, like if uh, people are going to respond to it like it did to you. But all I was doing was being a fan and picking bands I wanted to work with based on I love their sound. Like literally it was all it was based on now that I've been in it for a long time. Now I'm looking for other things, right. That make more business more successful. Like, are they touring? Like yeah. how active can they be? Have they built their own fan base? Are they putting the effort in before it was just like music only. And let's worry about the rest later, you know, but you have to evolve with that stuff. So that's really cool. I answered that question. But. For sure. And then, so now the label's kind of what's happening now, where do you see it going? What's the, what do you, where do you see the death metal scene in general going now? It's hard to say, man. Like I said, it's getting overcrowded. So I'm curious to see like when the bubble will break or like what the next trend is. And people are trying to, just like people try to like forecast like the finance sector, you know, oh, what's happening with real estate? What's happening with crypto? What's, you know, no one fucking yeah. knows. And you just have to like take the best educated guess. But it, to me with music, it's almost like, who cares? Like, let's go on the journey. Like, now, as a business person, you're thinking, like, I want to be ahead of it. But at the same time, that's not, like, why I got into this. So, to me, I, I think I just got to be true to myself and keep it organic. And, like, just, like, let things, you know, if I hear a band I love, like, support them. You know? <laughs> like, so, yeah, I, I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, I don't have that crystal ball. I'm hearing so much cool music. And I'm hearing some, like, industrial stuff coming back. Like, kind of this almost with the same vibe it came in like the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I don't know if that's going to take off or not. I have no idea, dude. It seemed like a few bands popped up in, in like the more extreme metal side of the last couple of years. It sounded like just like Godflesh. And that was it. There's only these couple bands. Um, so maybe that's not going to happen. But who knows? I just hope people keep pushing the boundaries, man. Like that band Worm. I don't know if you're familiar with that band Worm. I think they're on 20 Buck. Yeah, but, uh, they're great. They're probably, they're probably one of the more interesting bands that I've heard combining all styles and doing it in a way that makes sense where it's not like I use Between the Barrier to me as an example. I hated that band when it came out because it was this like pick and choose your style, you know, like cut and paste. We're going to have death metal part. We're going to have black metal part. We're going to have this kind of proggy part and we're just going to cut and paste. And obviously they evolved. Um, but at the beginning, I was like, this is horseshit. Like, I don't want to hear this. This is not musical. But they had to start somewhere, I guess. But Worm is like 
combining it all seamlessly, man. And like, to me, if I had to say there's a future in extreme music, it's got to be that. It's got to be the way Worm's doing it, where they're just kind of like taking all of this and like, you can't categorize this as a death metal band. We're not a black metal band. We're not a doom band. We like are an extreme metal band. Yeah. Just letting the music flow from us. And this is what's just coming out. Heavy and evil and terrifying. Yeah. And in Imperial Triumphant's another one. I know they don't. It's, it was like crazy to see their rise, dude. Like I loved it, but and you signed them, right? You gave them their first shot. No, no, no. I mean, they had already been uh, on that Italian label, Code Six Six Six, and then a couple things. I just, I literally only did an EP. I just think we did such a good job on the promotion side, and we did have some help. Me and a guy we uh, actually haven't talked to for a long time. I don't even know. I think he's out of the industry completely. But we kind of just really dove in and got a lot of good press for them, and. Uh, you know, they did a lot of work on their own. Those guys work so hard. So they deserve all the success. They've done everything right, really. But to, to hear that kind of music, like, resonate with people is, like, insane. I mean, it's like John Zorn. Yeah, because they're just so intense and weird and unapologetic. Well, and it's, like, not digestible. That music is uncomfortable to listen to. A lot of it's just noise and, like, jazz on steroids with these kind of, like, black metal-ish I mean, I don't even think there, there's much black metal left in there. It's just like this extreme music assault. Because um, I've had all these death metal guys interested in it, right? And like, they'll come to me and be like, you released that Imperial Triumphant, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're good friends of mine. I love them. And they're like, dude, I had to like walk up out of the room. Like, it was like, I don't get it. I thought it was terrible. And I was like, but you know, it's like some of those dudes just don't get it. They're death metal heads or black metal heads, you know, but like. I'm a musician first, so like it always, you know, resonated with me. But um, it's so crazy to see their success, man. So who knows where it's gonna go, man? You got bands like Imperial pushing it, bands like Worm pushing it. So it's exciting to hear bands like that. Mm -hmm. People, you know, even like um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it, man. I don't know Latin, but uh, a lingua ignota or whatever that chick. Lingua ignota. It's in it's insanely cool, dude, and it's yeah. so deeply personal to her, and she's like revealing it all. And it's some of the most extreme, intense shit I've ever heard, you know? So, I mean, that to me is more extreme than a lot of like heavy music. I mean, it's way heavier. So Sure. So the future is bright is what you're saying. I think so, man. I think there's going to be a lot of shit in between because a lot of there is there are people that just fall on the bandwagon and maybe not even by choice. Maybe they just heard it too late and they started a band and, you know, they're for all of the amazing bands, there's like 20 times the not so great bands, right? And so it will sure. kind of filter its way out, all the shit. But, uh, and there'll, there'll still always be bands jumping on bandwagons and stuff. But for the for the people that are kind of like uh, torch bearing and, and striving to, to have their own sound and their own voice and do something different, that's what is interesting to me. And I think, you know, the, the labels that I look to and re respect the most aren't ever signing bandwagon bands dude and that's like 20 bucks spin and profound lore like i always look to them when i go like you know what would they do in this situation like they, they uh, to me they just always have stayed true to themselves and they're successful because of it and they just sign bands they believe in and that's like literally the same ethos i try to um yeah. live and live by whatever you know very cool well thank you so much for coming on and kind of getting so deep into the backstory and uh unveiling the depths of uh the depths of depravity. Yeah, man. I, I hope I didn't bore anybody. I know I can uh, trail on with some of that stuff. There's just so much. Yeah, it was cool. That happened. You know? It's hard to sum up sometimes. Absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back uh, next week. All right, guys. All right. So that was awesome. 
Thank you, everyone out there, for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.